Well, good morning. It's good to have you with us here, those of you who are in person. It's good to see your beautiful faces, at least some of your faces. Thanks for wearing those masks for us. It's a great way to love one another. Welcome to those of you who are joining us from home as well. Uh, it's good to be with you. A couple years ago when we, uh, in our home, we put in a garden in the back corner of our property, about an eight by 16 or so garden. And uh, when, we, when we first built, it's a little raised bed. When we did it, we went down to Allied Landscape Supply. There's my shameless plug uh, to our friends who uh, we bought a couple yards of mushroom soil to fill it with. And if you don't know what mushroom soil is, it's basically gold, half dirt, half fertilizer, which means you can grow anything in it. And that's actually part of the problem we found is that you can grow anything in it, which means that the first year that we planted it, our, we, we ended up with six-foot-tall tomato plants and just produce flowing out of it. It's amazing. But because it was so fertile, some other things started growing in it. Any guesses? Weeds, right? Weeds. They grow like crazy too in that place. <laughs> in that exact same soil that was beautiful and rich and was able to grow incredible produce and, and bear all kinds of fruit, the same soil has the potential to grow weeds. And as I think about that, as I walk by our garden every day, I can't help but think of how much that's just like our culture. I feel like our culture, our world today right now, is just a fertile garden of mushroom soil in which the seeds, the weeds of division can grow like crazy. We are sharply divided as a country, even as a church, along political lines along political parties, especially in an election year. It feels like we're on the brink of civil war, but instead of it being divided geographically north and south, it's actually divided ideologically, pitting neighbor against neighbor. We're divided in our response to COVID, and we center it all around a mask. It's become the symbol of how we respond to COVID. And we have people who hate masks and can't imagine ever wearing them and accuse others who do wear them of being sheep. And we have others who will go the other direction and say, if you don't wear a mask, you hate everyone. How could you? And again, we're divided. Parents feel torn, not knowing what the schools are going to do as to what to do with, with education in the fall. What's that going to look like? We're divided among the racial tension, which has existed and been at a core part of our country for hundreds of years. How do we respond? What's the real problem there? How do we respond to Black Lives Matters or All Lives Matters or Blue Lives Matter or just the list could keep right on going? We are sharply divided. What's the path moving forward? And those are just a couple of biggies, right? Not to mention all the little differences that we all experience, differences of opinion and conviction on every level that have the potential to cause division amongst all of us. The soil of our world is rich for the seeds, the weeds of division to grow. And just like my garden at home, that soil is also rich for something that's beautiful. It's also an incredible opportunity. Every one of those big dilemmas in our world are also an incredible opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to stand out and to shine as we do what Ephesians chapter four, verse three says to do, which is as we work to 
to continue and persevere and maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's a beautiful opportunity for the fruit of the Spirit to grow, where love and joy and peace and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control would stand out like a dark background against with bright stars. Which I think is why it's so important that we're continuing this series called God's New Community, where we're meditating. We're actually at the final week of it. But we're gonna continue meditating on what a topic that Pastor Bill started last week. And the fact that the church is not just some conglomeration of strangers, but we're actually a family. Last week, Bill talked about the fact that none of us have been naturally born into this family. But it's actually by the grace of God that we have been adopted into the family of God. Not because we deserve it, not because there's something special about us, but because it's been an act of grace. Because of God's great love for us. That we've been brought in and become children of God which changes everything in the way that we interact with God. We're no longer strangers, but we're children. We no longer cower in fear, but we approach the throne boldly with confidence. And we are more loved than you could ever imagine. But being a part of God's family does not just interchange the way that you interact with God himself, but also changes the way that we interact with each other, with fellow believers. The church, as the metaphor of the church being the family of God, is throughout the entire New Testament. Every single book is filled with references to us being the children of God, the family or household of God, or us being brothers and sisters in Christ. You could do an entire study on that, and we're not going to tonight. Just want to look at one passage this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And if you have your copy of Scripture, I invite you to turn there with me. Or if you have a device, uh, you can go there as well. 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy, who's a young leader in the church. And in chapter 3, verse 15, he explains why he wrote this letter to Timothy. And he says in verse, chapter 3, verse 15, so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, in God's family. You can see it right there, the family reference. And the passage I want us to look at this morning, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he actually gives an example of what it looks like, how we are to conduct ourselves within the church within the family of God. And it says this, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. See, the first thing I think you notice in those two short verses is the familial relationships, right? All those mother, father, brother, sister terms that you see which says that we are a family here, that all believers in Christ are the family of God. Jesus redefines who your family is, who you're most loyal to, who you're called to care for and love above all else. In Mark chapter three, Jesus is teaching to a, to a group and, and somebody from the crowd yells out to Jesus, hey Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. They're here to see you. And Jesus in Mark three and verse 33 says, who are my mother and brother? Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus radically redefines who our family is. And you can see that in this morning's passage as well, right? We're to treat older men and older women as spiritual fathers and mothers, younger men, younger women as brothers and sisters. And what I think Paul is trying to get at 
is that because of our connection with Christ, because we have been united with Jesus, that that relationship, that bond that unites us to Christ also reunites us to one another in the deepest possible way. In the most foundational piece of who you are in your identity is that you are a child of God, that you belong to the family of God. Paul reinforces this in Galatians chapter three. It's a really famous verse where he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, is Paul saying that you lose your ethnicity or your gender if you come to Christ? Well, clearly not. But he's saying that when put into proper perspective, our being one in Christ by faith in his death and his resurrection, our adoption to sonship, by virtue of that, every other difference that you and I experience takes such a far back seat to that, that oneness that we experience that it's as if they don't even exist. I heard a pastor say it once this way. He said that you have more in common with an Iraqi Christian whose world is totally different than ours than you do with your unbelieving neighbor who might vote to the same political party as you, who might send their kids to the same school you do, who might work at the same place as you do, who shops at the same stores and wears the same clothes and does everything on the outside the same as you. But who we are in Christ is the most foundational element of who we are. And if we are the family of God, if you take a moment and just look around at your family, you realize how difficult it is to love one another. I don't know if you have this experience with your biological family, your immediate family, where maybe there's a relative that comes to a get-together, and you know when they come, things are about to get awkward. You're going to have some sort of fight because they see your, they, they see the world so radically different from you. And actually, I think some of you are thinking about someone even in this church family who sees the world so radically different from you. And that is your family that you are called to love. Scripture understands that this is a challenge. And it actually leaves space and encourages dialogue about disputable matters. You can read Romans 14 on that. And there's even times where we get to step into one another's lives and actually correct each other. In fact, look again at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Look at what it says. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Don't rebuke harshly, but exhort. To rebuke and to exhort both come out of a place where there's a challenge, where there's a difference. You don't exhort someone you're on the same page with and there's nothing wrong. It's when there's some sort of, of, of fracture that the exhortation or the rebuke is needed. But both of these things that come out of conflict or disagreement come with totally different attitudes, come from opposite perspectives. To rebuke harshly is actually to do violence to someone with your words, with your attitude. It comes from a place of, of arrogance, of conceited self-righteousness in which I know better and I'm gonna fix you. You're going to see things my way. It's that posture that I'm better and I've arrived and you have a lot to learn from me. But to exhort comes from the exact opposite attitude. It's one that is humble and gentle, 
that's appealing to someone, that's prone to listen, quick to listen and slow to speak, as James says. That's what we're called to do. This is the primary point that Paul is trying to make to Timothy, that inside the church, we're to love one another like a loving family, not a dysfunctional one that shows up on Jerry Springer, but a real loving family. And Jesus says, by this, in John 13, by this, by your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. In fact, this is such a big deal. I want you to hear again what John, 1 John says, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says that anyone who claims to be in the light, anyone who claims to be a Christian who believes the gospel but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. And anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. And there is nothing in them to make them stumble. If you believe, if you claim to believe the gospel, then the idea of hating your brother or sister through your words, through your posts and your comments, through the very attitude in your heart. This isn't just about what comes out of your mouth, it's also about our hearts, right? That hatred is incompatible with being a Christian. So while the Bible does leave a lot of space for us to need wisdom and to work through some of these disputable matters, what is not optional is the way that we posture ourselves towards those around us, whether they agree or disagree with us. I don't know about you, but I know how easy it is for me to turn into rebuking one another harshly. We do it all the time. It comes natural on things like social media. Where we slander people and we throw mud at one another, calling names. And we often don't do it necessarily to their face, but we'll do it to the behind their back as well, lobbing verbal grenades at people. I want to say this as clearly as I can, that there is absolutely no place for this in the family of God. It's way too easy, by the way, if you want to evaluate this, you have a little self-reflection moment. It's way too easy to think about the people who agree with you and think that you're doing a great job at loving. The real test is to look at the way that you think about someone who disagrees with you. That's your test. How do you treat the people who are unlike you? A friend of mine earlier this week sent an article uh, that talked about the connection between these issues and the ninth commandment, which we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, which says, you shall not give false witness against your neighbor. And in this article, they reference how the Westminster Larger Confession, which was written in 1648, explains the meaning of this ninth commandment. What does this actually mean to not, have, to not bear false witness or give false testimony against your neighbor, which really stands as the opposite of love? And this is how the Westminster Larger Catechism describes it. I'm gonna kind of interject them, read it, and then also kind of talk about it as we're going through this. It says that the duties required in the ninth commandment are preserving and promoting truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. It means that to love our neighbor actually means to care about their name and their reputation as well as ours. Appearing and standing for truth and from the heart, not simply just on the external, but from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth 
in all matters of judgment and justice and in all other things. This is holistic. This is all of life. Goes on to say that the ninth commandment calls us to a charitable esteem, a generous posture towards others. Loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, actually sorrowing for and covering for their infirmities, their weaknesses, freely acknowledging their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, ready to receive a good report, good report and unwilling to admit an evil report that's not true about them. Do you see what it's, what it's getting at? I love the way it's wording this. This is not simply just clean up the outside. What God is calling us to is to love deeply from the heart, 1 Peter 2. Love one another deeply from the heart. And as I read that and I hear that, I know based on my own experience and my own weakness that what I'm being called to do is epically impossible for me. That left to my own, this is impossible. But praise God, you are not left to your own. That Christ saw us in our helplessness, took on flesh, became like one of us, was acquainted with weakness, and yet in all of that did not sin. So that through his death and through his resurrection, he could pour out his spirit and not ask you to just try to improve yourself a little bit better, but he actually invites you to come and die with him. It is impossible for you by yourself, but that you has been invited to die with Christ and to be raised to new life so that now it's not you who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. Which means that Christ, who did this perfectly, by his spirit, is living inside of us, empowering us, transforming us into one who loves the way that he loves. And here's why this is so important. Because the world around us is watching. What do you think would happen in our community if the world around us saw the church who was filled with Democrats and Republicans, mask wearers and mask haters, homeschoolers, public schoolers, cyber schoolers, or whatever other combination there might be this fall, people who support and are suspicious of Black Lives Matters, Pick every other dispute. If our church was filled with that, and yet what they saw through all of those differences was a group of people who loved one another, who sacrificed for one another genuinely from the heart. And in a day where almost everything is divisive and polarizing, what if the church refused to allow weeds of division to grow in this rich soil that our culture is? What if the world saw church a church filled with imperfect people who valued their oneness in Christ over all the differences that could divide them. And we gave one another the benefit of the doubt. We listened more and we talked less. We were a little bit more passionate about loving our brother and sister than proving ourselves to be right and proving them wrong and shaming them in the public arena. What would happen? Do you know what would happen? The world would taste the goodness of God lived through us. They would see just a little bit of God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. They would say in the words of Zechariah chapter eight, 
let us go with you because we've heard that God is with you. And church, God is with you. He is among you. And it's the only hope we have because there is not a single thing in this entire universe outside of the power of God that can take a group of people with so many opportunities to divide and so many opportunities to rebuke each other harshly, verbally, typing, or in our hearts. There is no other power outside of the work of the Spirit of God that can bring unity to that, that can change so that we become a people who love one another. And oh my word, is it going to be challenging? We already know that, right? Which means that we're gonna come back over and over again to Jesus as we see ourselves within our hearts, that idol that, that says, I have to be right that I have to be in the position of power to feel superior, which means I put someone else down. When we find ourselves elevating our, our rights as Americans, living out of our American identity rather than living out of the Christ-centered child of God identity that actually lays down our rights for our brothers and sisters. When we find ourselves treating our brothers and sisters more like enemies than we do family in all of those moments and more, will return over and over again to Jesus, confessing that, confessing to one another, forgiving one another freely as Christ has forgiven us, and asking Jesus to transform us, to change us deep within so that we love one another deeply, especially in the face of all the differences that we experience in life. For the glory of God, for our joy, and for the sake of the world that's watching. Let me pray for us and ask the Lord to do this work in us. Father, I do ask that you would empower us to be what you have called us to be. In and of ourselves, this is not possible. We know ourselves. We know how easy it is to to rebuke one another harshly, to slander, to act unlovingly, to hate our brother and sister. And Lord, we just confess that and we repent this morning. We turn to you. And we're going to do it again tomorrow. We thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for the presence of your spirit who is transforming us more and more to be just like you, Jesus. Lord, we long to be a church, to be a family of God who love one another deeply. And we long for the world to see and experience your goodness in our lives and through our lives. So we give ourselves to you, Jesus. We love you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.